Chapter 13 of The Year When Stardust Fell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jamie Todd. Chapter 13 Stay Out of Town. It took a surprisingly short time to ring Mayfield with a barbed wire barricade. A large stock of steel fence posts was on hand in the local farm supply stores, and these could be driven rapidly even in the frozen ground. There was plenty of wire. What more was needed, both of wire and posts, was taken from the adjacent farmland fences, and by the end of the week following the mayor's pronouncement, the task was completed and the guards were at their posts. In all that time there had been no occasion to turn anyone away, but sentiment both for and against the program was heavy and bitter within the community. On the Sunday after completion of the fence, Dr. Aylesworth chose to speak of it in his sermon. He had advertised that he would do so. The church was not only packed, but large numbers of people stood outside in the freezing weather listening through the doors. Even greater excitement was stirred by the whispered information that Mayor Hilliard was sitting in the center of the congregation. The minister had titled his sermon, My Brother's Keeper. He opened by saying, Am I my brother's keeper? We know the answer to that question, my friends. For all the thousands of years that man has been struggling upward, he has been developing the answer to that question. We know it, even though we may not always abide by it. We know who our brothers are, all mankind, whether in Asia or in Europe or next door to our own house. These are our brothers. As he elaborated on the theme, Ken thought that this was his mother's belief which she had expressed when the fence was first mentioned. We cannot help those in distant lands, said Dr. Aylesworth. As much as our hearts go out to them and are touched with compassion at their plight, we can do nothing for them. For those on our own doorstep, however, it is a different matter. We are being told now by our civil authorities in this community that we must drive away at the point of a gun any who come holding out their hands for succor and shelter. We are told we must drive them away to certain death. I tell you, if we do this thing, no matter what the outcome of our present condition, we shall never be able to look one another in the eye. We shall never be able to look at our own image without remembering those whom we turned away when they came to us for help. I call upon you to petition our civil authorities to remove this brutal and inhumane restriction in order that we may be able to behave as the civilized men and women we think we have become. Although faced with disaster, we are not yet without a voice in our own actions, and those who have made this unholy ruling can be persuaded to relent if the voices of the people are loud enough. He sat down amid a buzz of whispered comment. Then all eyes turned suddenly at the sound of a new voice in the hall. Mayor Hilliard was on his feet and striding purposefully toward the pulpit. Reverend, you've had your say, and now I think I've got a right to have mine. I know this is your bailiwick, and you can ask me to leave if you want to. However, these are my people six days a week to your one. Will you let me say my piece? Dr. Aylesworth rose again, a smile of welcome on his face. I think we share the people, or rather they share us on all seven days of the week, he said. I will be happy to have you use this pulpit to deliver any message you may care to. Thanks, said Mayor Hilliard as he mounted the platform and stood behind the pulpit. Dr. Aylesworth and I, he began, have been good friends for a long time. 
We usually see eye to eye on most things, but in this we are dead opposite. What he says is true enough. If enough of you want to protest what I've done, you can have a change. But that change will have to include a new mayor and a new set of councilmen. I was elected, and the council was elected to make rules and regulations for the welfare of this community as long as we were in office. We've made this rule about allowing no more refugees in Mayfield, and it's going to stand as long as we're in office. By next summer, if the harvest is even a few days late, your children are going to be standing around crying for food you can't give them, and you are going to have to cut your supplies to one-fifth their normal size. That's the way it adds up after we count all the people in the valley, and all the cases and sacks of food in the warehouses. It's just plain arithmetic. If we keep adding more people, we're all going to get closer and closer to starvation, and finally wake up one morning and find we've gone over the edge of it. Now, if that's what you want, just go ahead and get some city officers who will arrange it for you. If anybody in this town, including you, Dr. Ilsworth, can think of a more workable answer or one that makes better sense than the one we've got, I'd like to know about it. It snowed heavily that afternoon out of a bitter, leaden sky. It started in the midst of the morning service, and by the time the congregation dispersed, it was difficult to see a block away. There was little comment about what they had heard among the people leaving the church. They walked with heads bowed against the snow towards their cold homes and sparsely filled pantries. The community chapel was near the edge of town. One of the boundary fences lay only two blocks away. From that direction, as the crowd dispersed, there came the sudden sound of a shot. It was muffled under the heavy skies and the dense snow, but there was no mistaking the sound. Ken jerked his head sharply. That must have been one of the guards, he said. His father nodded. Together they raced in the direction of the sound. Others began to run, too, their hearts pounding in anticipation of some crisis that might settle the unanswered questions. Ken noticed ahead of them, through the veil of snow, the chunky figure of Mayor Hilliard running as rapidly as he could. As they came to the fence, they saw the guard standing on one side, his rifle lowered and ready. On the other side of the barbed wire enclosure was a stout, middle-aged man. He wore an overcoat, but there was no hat on his head. His face was drawn with agony and uncomprehending despair. He staggered on his feet as he pleaded in a tired voice, "'You've got to let me come in. I've walked all the way in this blizzard. I haven't had any food for two days.' A group of churchgoers lined the fence now, additional ones coming up slowly, almost reluctantly, but knowing they had to witness what was about to take place. Ken exclaimed hoarsely to his father, "'That's Sam Baker. He runs the drugstore and newsstand in Frederick. Everybody in Mayfield knows Sam Baker.' Sam Baker turned in bewildered, helpless pleading to the crowd lined on the other side of the fence. Mayor Hilliard stood back a dozen yards from the wire. "'You've got to help me.' Sam Baker begged. You can't make me go back all that way. It's fifty miles. There's nothing there. They're all dead or lost in the snow. Give me something to eat, please. You've got to move on, the guard said mechanically. Nobody gets in. That's the law here. Along the fence, people pressed close, and one or two men started hesitantly to climb. Mayor Hilliard's voice rang out. Anybody goes on the other side of that fence stays on the other side. The men climbed down. No one said anything. Sam Baker scanned them with his helpless glance once more. Then he turned slowly. 
fifty feet from the fence, he fell in the snow, face down. Mayor Hilliard spoke slowly and clearly once more. If anyone so much as throws a crust of bread over that fence, the guard has orders to shoot. As if frozen, the onlookers remained immobile. The guard held his fixed stance. Mayor Hilliard stood, feet apart, his hands in his pockets, staring defiantly. On the other side of the fence, the thick flakes of snow were rapidly covering the inert form of Sam Baker. In only a few moments, he would be obliterated from their sight. That would be the signal for them all to turn and go home, Ken thought. Impulsively, he took a step forward. He looked at his father's face. Dad. Professor Maddox touched Ken's arm with a restraining hand. His face was grim and churned by conflicting desires. The utter stillness was broken then by the crunching sound of boots in the snow. All eyes turned to the powerful, white-maned figure that approached. Dr. Aylesworth was hatless, and the snow was thick in his hair. He paused a moment, comprehending the situation. Then he strode forward to the fence. He put a foot on the wire and climbed. His coat caught on the barbs as he jumped to the other side. He ripped it free, ignoring the tear of the fabric. Mayor Hilliard watched as if hypnotized. He jerked himself finally out of his immobility. Parson, he cried, come back here. Dr. Aylesworth ignored the command. He strode forward with unwavering steps. It's no different with you than it is with any other man, Hilliard shouted. He took the gun from the guard. You're breaking the law. If you don't stop, I'll shoot. The majestic figure of the minister turned. He faced Hilliard without hesitation. Shoot, he said. He turned back and moved once more to the fallen druggist. There was sweat on Mayor Hilliard's face now. He brushed it with a gloved hand. His hat fell unnoticed to the ground. He raised the gun no higher. Aylesworth, he called, and his voice was pleading now. We've got to do what's right. The minister's voice came back to him, hollowly, as if from an immense distance. Yes, we've got to do what's right. Dr. Aylesworth could be seen faintly through the veil of snow as he bent down, raising the druggist's heavy form to his own back in a fireman's carry, then turning to retrace his steps. Mayor Hilliard let the gun sag in his hands. At the fence, Dr. Aylesworth paused. Separate those wires, he ordered those standing near. They hastily obeyed, pressing their feet on the lower wire, raising the center one. Take him, the minister commanded. He rolled the figure of Sam Baker gently through the opening and crawled through himself. Bring him to my house, he said. Without a glance at the mayor, he strode off through the parted crowd and disappeared. One by one the onlookers followed, slowly, never glancing at the immobile figure of the mayor. Hilliard watched the last of them fade into the snow curtain, and he stood there alone, still holding the gun in his hand. The guard came up last. Do you want me to keep on here, Mr. Hilliard? I still say it was the only thing to do, said Mrs. Maddox at the dinner table. How could anyone claim to be human and think of leaving poor Mr. Baker lying there in the snow? It was the only thing Dr. Aylesworth could do, said Professor Maddox. Mayor Hilliard did the only thing he could do. Which was right and which was wrong? I don't think any of us are really sure anymore. What do you suppose may come of this? asked Professor Larson. I don't know, Ken's father admitted. There's a lot of excitement in town. A fellow named Meggs has stirred up talk against Hilliard. 
He's the storekeeper who tried to hold a profiteering sale, you remember. I heard there were some fights in town after church, said Maria. Ken nodded. Yes, I heard about them too. During the next few days, a kind of unspoken truce seemed to reign over the town. It was rumored that both Mayor Hilliard and Dr. Aylesworth were waiting for the other to come for a talk, but that neither was willing to go first under the circumstances. Orders had been given that Sam Baker was to get no special ration. He would get only what others shared with him, out of their own meager allotment. In the laboratory on College Hill, it was confirmed that Professor Maddox had indeed discovered a completely effective means of cleansing metals of the destroying dust. Art Matthews and the Science Club boys were once again scouring the town for engine parts that could be cleaned and used in assembling new and, this time, workable engines. On Friday morning, Professor Douglas came in late, after all the others had been there for a couple of hours. He was panting from his rapid walk up the hill. Have you heard the news? he exclaimed. The others looked up. What news? Professor Maddox asked. A couple of farmers and ranchers from the south end of the valley rode in about three o'clock this morning. They were half dead. They said their places and several others had been attacked last night. Everything in the whole southern part of the valley, beyond the point, has been looted and burned. Six families, still living on their own places, were wiped out. Who did it? Professor Larson exclaimed. Nomads. The ranchers say there's a band of over 3,000 camped down by Turnville, about 20 miles from here. They've been moving across the country, killing and looting everything that's in their way. Now they're headed for Mayfield. They've heard about us having a big cache of supplies. All work in the laboratory ceased as the men gathered around Professor Douglas. They stared into the distance, but their thoughts were alike. Three thousand, said Professor Maddox slowly. We could put twice that many good men against them. We ought to be able to stand them off if they attack. What's Hilliard doing about it? He wants us all down there this morning. There doesn't seem to be much question about him staying on as mayor since this came up. In a group, the men left the half-completed experiments and made their way down the hill to the city hall. When they arrived, they found the council chamber already filled. The mayor and the councilmen were at their conference table on the platform in front of the room. At one side, facing both the leaders and the audience, were three ragged, unshaven strangers in heavy boots and ill-fitting coats. They had not bothered to remove the fur-lined caps from their heads. Nomads, Ken thought. It was apparent what was going on. We're coming in, the center man was saying. His massive size and strength showed even under the thick covering of clothes. I say we're coming in, and we either come peaceable and you treat us right, or we come in our own way. It doesn't make much difference to us how we do it. You just call the shots, mister, and we'll play it your way. We've got 2,000 armed men who know how to shoot fast and straight because they've done a lot of it in the last two months. They're the ones that shot faster and straighter than the guys they were shooting at. You want to live here peaceably with us, is that it? Questioned Mayor Hilliard. The man laughed harshly. Why, sure. We're peaceful people, aren't we, men? He took reassurance from his grinning companions. Just as peaceful as them around us. How about those ranch families you murdered last night? The speaker laughed again. They didn't want peace, did they, men? All we asked for was a little something to eat, and they started an argument with us. We just don't like arguments.
Mayor Hilliard glanced beyond the table to the first row of listeners. His glance fell upon Dr. Aylesworth. Before giving my consent to your coming in, he said slowly, I'd like to hear from one of our more prominent citizens. This is Dr. Aylesworth, one of our ministers. Would you like to tell these people how we feel about their proposal, Reverend? The minister rose slowly, his eyes never leaving the three nomads. It will be a pleasure to tell them. Then to the three he said, You can go right back where you came from. That's our answer to your proposal. The big man snarled. So that's the way you want it, is it? Well then, we'll be back, and when we come you'll wish you'd sung a different tune. Mayor Hilliard smiled a wry smile. I didn't expect our minister to be quite so unfeeling of your plight. Since I am in agreement with his views, however, I must say that you will not be back, because you are not going anywhere. Sheriff, arrest these men. Instantly the big man dropped his hand to his pocket. Before his gun was halfway out, a shot rang from the rear doorway of the crowded room. The stranger dropped to the platform like a crumpled bull. "'You're covered,' said Hilliard to the other two. "'You came here with a white flag, but it had our people's blood all over it. "'We are not violating any truce because this is not an affair of honor among gentlemen. "'It's going to be only an extermination of wild beasts.'" End of chapter 13